think culturally we have this like, oh, if I don't have a job, I am worth less. And so people are afraid to put themselves out there. And so you're saying like, no, put yourself out there. Yeah, definitely. This is Unemployable, the podcast for independent workers, freelancers, DAO contributors, and other self-employed folks who want to own their employment and become self-sovereign. We may work alone, but we can be unemployable together. This episode of Unemployable is brought to you by Opolis, providing health insurance, benefits, and payroll for the self-employed. Join the community at opolis.co. That's O-P-O-L-I-S dot C-O. Welcome to Unemployable University. I'm your host, Joshua Lapidus, and today we're talking about how to find work as a freelance web developer. By 2023, it's estimated that Web3 will be a $6 trillion industry. With the growing popularity of NFTs, the metaverse, and other Web3 experiences, demand for freelancer Web3 web development is stronger than ever and only projected to keep rising. Today, I am honored to be joined by my good friend, Mantis Clone, a full-stack Web3 developer, contributor to multiple DAOs, and an Opolis Employment Commons member to talk about finding freelance work as a web developer. Over the course of this episode, we cover how to get started as a freelance web developer, how to get freelance web dev projects, whether you are a beginner or a seasoned pro, a look at salaries, bounties, and benefits for freelance web developers, and a comparison of pros and cons of working in-house versus freelance. Jumping right into today's conversation, Mantis Clone, thank you for coming on the podcast. I know you're making your living as a freelance web developer right now, and I'm looking forward to sharing your insights and lessons with the unemployable community. Tell me a little bit about your freelancing journey. How did you get started freelancing and what sorts of interesting projects are you working on today? Sure. So my start in freelancing was at the start of 2021, when I decided that I wanted to pivot my career into the Web3 space. I saw a massive amount of opportunity there, and I really just I wanted to dive in and see where I could make an impact. And I started off joining a incubator slash peer-to-peer community called Kernel, where we learned about fundamental Web3 principles and got to meet a bunch of really interesting individuals within the community, all of us learning together. That experience was so positive. It showed me really concrete evidence of, for why Web3 is such a massive paradigm shift, and it reaffirmed my choice to, to pivot. And it also gave me a few of the tools to understand like some of the underlying technology, how to work with it, and what kinds of things I would want to work on next. Cool. So we're, yeah, we're familiar with the folks over at Kernel. They're good friends of Opolis. I kind of want to, what was your experience like with Kernel and would you recommend it? I would absolutely recommend it. I was really into the community when I first started off. And then after I got a, my first major client, I kind of drifted away from the community for a little while. And then I jumped back in as a guide to help out new members who are just starting their Web3 journeys. The things that I really love about the program is that it really encourages smaller, sort of more intimate conversations and connections. So really, it's not about learning everything all at once. It's a marathon rather than a sprint. But for the people who are there for more of a uh, intentional sort of adventure, they have the tools for you to do so. Match you up with mentors. There's a presentation at the end where you get to pitch to VCs. You can pair up with technical as well as business founders. It's a really great experience. Would you say that your closest friends in the space, like the people you spend the most time hanging out with, talking to, working with, do they come from the kernel community? 
I think what happens more often is I make friends outside of Kernel and then they end up joining. <laughs> it's been a really wild journey to see so many people kind of diffuse in and out of all the different communities that I'm part of. Sure. And I noticed you're wearing a Raid Guild hoodie. Are you also part of the Raid Guild community? I'm part of their community. I just recently joined as a uh, member of their season five cohort. I was able to make it through that program. Oh, congratulations. Oh, thank you. Thanks. So I'm hoping eventually to maybe become a member of Raid Guild, but I'm just kind of starting out my journey there. Cool. A lot of people don't know this, but my first DAO experience was with Raid Guild. Oh, wow. That was that's part of my origin story. Yeah. That's a good one to start with. I was in <laughs> Denver and I met Tay. And Tay was like, you should meet these Raid Guild people. Nice. That's awesome. The conversation was a little different than that, but that's basically what happened. And the rest is history. <laughs> My experience was very similar. I just went to MCON a couple of weeks ago. I ran into Imperion, and he introduced me to Tay. And Tay was like, hey, you should totally talk with the other Season 5 cohort members and see if you can get in. <laughs> so that's exactly what I did. Yeah, Tay's a fantastic ambassador for the space and for helping people figure out where to get plugged in and helping deploy their skills where they're needed. So Raid Guild is a great group of freelancers that I think you're you're joining here. What was your freelance experience like before coming to Raid Guild, or is this kind of the beginning of it? My experience with freelancing before coming to Raid Guild was kind of, kind of scattered. At that point, I was already part of several different Web3 communities. And for the last few months or so, I've been trying to you know, find my way, figure out my niche, figure out the, the projects that I could meaningfully contribute to while still maintaining sort of like a, a diversity of, of different projects that I'm working on. So before you got into Web3, before you joined Kernel, what were you working on? I've been a professional developer for over nine years now. My career started out in the industrial automation and aerospace and defense industries. I spent about five years working on a variety of different projects a lot of them more lower level in the tech stack. Started out doing a lot of like embedded work, doing working on chips that sat alongside FPGAs, working on embedded firmware programs that would run on really restricted operating systems. Cool. Did those roles require a clearance? I did have a clearance at one point, yes. <laughs> I had a secret when I was at the State Department, but my first potential development role was as a junior Java developer with the Department of Homeland Security, USCIS. Oh, wow. And this was 2016, as 2017 was starting, and Trump got elected, and like January, he takes over and uh, cancels this contract right before my clearance pens. <laughs> oh, so, man. But, but, but I want to transition that into a question of like, what's it like to do the opposite of cleared work? <laughs> where we're, we're like, we're building this like brand new infrastructure that's kind of outside of the norm. Well, I think that there are a lot of differences. For me, one of the biggest ones just personally was working on open source software was a massive career unlock for me because it meant that I didn't have to worry about convincing my future employers or my future clients like, hey, these are the things that I worked on and all I can tell you is just this brief description of what it was kind of like. <laughs> you know, Nowadays, I can just say, hey, here's my GitHub. I've clearly been active every single day for the last 365 days. And these are the cool things that I built in that time. So it's a lot easier now. <laughs> There's got to be a difference between like applying for a job and interviewing versus 
saying, here's my like Git repos and offering a services agreement, there's a, is there a change in that dynamic or is it still asking someone for money? <laughs> so, honestly, honestly, it's a, it's a little bit of a, a stressful conversation for me. It, there are differences though. I mean, I feel like there's a little bit more onus on the individual to be confident in their skill set when you're going into like a, a negotiation over a particular contract versus going into a negotiation for a, a job. It is similar. I mean, you're doing the same sort of calculations. Like, what is my skill set? What could I feasibly ask for that skill set on the open market? How does it change based on the particulars of the employer and the particulars of where I live and my own cost situation? Okay. It's different because it's, uh, well, it happens a lot more frequently as a freelancer. So you have to get comfortable with it. What advice would you pass along to somebody who is just starting? And if you could do some things differently as you were just getting started out as a web free freelancer, what would you do differently? Well, if you were just getting it started out as a freelancer, I would say to probably start slow, try and find your day job, so to speak, or your the thing that is for sure. And then just start dipping your toes in, join a community, do a online free tutorial. You can try and do some bounty hunting work. So there's communities that'll put up bounties for work that they've already scoped out and they'll offer bounties for those. Let's just like unpack bounties for a second. What are bounties? How do you claim them? And is it one of those things where multiple people can try and say only one bounty is awarded? Can you end up doing work that you don't get paid for? It's the core of the question. I see what you're saying. It really depends on the bounty itself. A lot of different platforms out there will offer different sorts of bounties that you could go after. Some of them are group bounties where they would have a team of people all collaboratively working on it. Other ones are like where it's more competitive, where you submit a proposal and then they approve one person or group of people to work on it. And then there's some that are even more competitive where they say everybody works on this at the same time and whoever submits the best one or the one that, that fixes the problem first gets the bounty payout. And those can be pretty cutthroat. There's a variety of different platforms for bounties these days also. Do you want to name a few that you like the best or that you frequent? I, I can name some. I, admittedly, I, I haven't actually done too many bounties myself. A lot okay. of the stuff that I've done is more you submit a proposal to, to a DAO or a community, and then they decide to fund it, and then you work on it afterwards. Ah, cool. But, uh, but some of the platforms out there is like Gitcoin. I know that they have a bounty platform on, on top of their stack. You could look at Dwork, Wonderverse. I think a lot of the other DAO-related project management suites are coming out with a bounty platform of some sort. I think Charmverse might have a bounty platform now, Cleoverse, a lot of verses. <laughs> what is it with verses and needing uh, work to be done? I don't know. It's, it's, it's all <laughs> off of the, the metaverse meme, I think. And we're just trying as hard as we can to not use the word that is now cringe because of Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> oh, that, that, that could be it too, yeah. <laughs> So you mentioned that some of these platforms, you submit proposals that communities then consider on funding you. What does that look like? Where do you submit a proposal like that? Sure. So most of the DAOs or communities that you're going to join are going to have some sort of middle ground for their governance. A lot of them have discords and that's where like the free flowing day-to-day -day sort of polls happen. But they'll often have a, a forum or something that's a little bit more concrete, better suited for long form writing. 
And that's typically where you would make your proposal. You would want to lay out a description of like the problem that you see, the solution that you're proposing, the details of what it would take in order to achieve that solution, any specifics about like the team that you're working with or the work breakdown structure of who's going to be doing what. Or if you're like creating a role that hasn't yet been assigned, that can also be specified. And then you lay out like a cost. You say, this is how much I think that something like this would cost. And you put it up on the forum and then you request feedback on that forum post. Will you like cold go to a discourse? Discourse is the, is the most common forum, at least the one that I'm familiar with that everyone's trying to move away from because I don't care for discourse. That's not why people yeah. are moving away from it. I just think that's part of it. <laughs> I don't like having to create a login for every single community and then none of my reputation is transferable, but we don't have to get into to that. Do you cold go to a forum and just make a proposal or do you spend some time in the community getting to know the needs beforehand or do you just like, these are my skills, this is how I wanna help and then you just kind of copy and paste it? That's a great question. And honestly, the answer differs a little bit depending on the type of organization you're proposing to. If you're going for a DAO, that's more of a like a community-based sort of thing where they're chasing a mission and maybe they don't necessarily have a super well-defined roadmap, that's the type of place where you definitely want to integrate with the community first and figure out what the pain points are. I actually contribute to a bankless DAO sub a project that has requested funding from Bankless DAO. I didn't write the proposal myself, um, but it's <laughs> called the, the Rug News. And we got an allocation for a not insignificant amount of bank. And then now the members of this DAO, which are like comedy writers, which I'm going to call myself a comedy writer because I got you to laugh here a few times. So the rug like has a pool of bank that for writing jokes or contributing week over week, you can submit via Dwork, which is a, another one of these platforms that people use for processing these payments. Okay. Yeah. Um, and just the other day I got 750 bank for writing a funny headline and up a tweet. That's great. That's one of the best ways that I've seen communities really leverage leverage their community and allow people to get plugged in more quickly is through bounties exactly like that. There's a huge number of small tasks that any DAO is going to need. Like if you can just jump into a meeting and be a scribe and write notes, I think that is a really great way to jump into a community and immediately provide value because nobody wants to write notes every single week. <laughs> yeah, right. So there's a lot of these open for non-technical folks, but as a developer, I'm imagining more time and energy and like setup that goes into being able to contribute development hours. Maybe that's not true. I'm not a developer, so I don't know. What is that like? It can be tricky, admittedly. I think some of the communities that have leveraged their developers, the best are the ones that create modular sort of plugin sort of architectures so that they've built this really great base and then anybody can come in and plug into it. So some of the ones that I see that are doing this really well are like the snapshot community. If you're, okay. if you're familiar with their code base, yeah. anybody can develop a snapshot strategy, which is effectively just a single JavaScript function. And you can immediately create new forms of governance. Oh, cool. Customized governance. Do you do those? I do. Yes. So that's cool. one of the things that I've done be in touch. frequently over the last couple of months. 
I develop snapshot strategies for Arrakis Finance, uh, Rary Fuse, maintain the one for Bankless DAO, which has gotten pretty complex these days because they have like bank tokens all over the place in a variety yeah. of different pools. So fun and... fact, Opolis does not have a snapshot strategy yet. As we approach 1,000 members, this is something that we're actually going to need to think about. And as a member, you will have a large part of helping to decide what is that governance going to look like. I'd like to go back a little bit to freelancing because one of the significant differences between like an in-house position and freelancing is that freelance developers need to actively find work rather than being stable like in-house somewhere. This aspect of self-employment can be a real mental hurdle for some people and many of our listeners. And not knowing where to look adds to that uncertainty and then not having income. So aside from the proposals on forums, how would you suggest freelancers find web development projects? That's a great question. I think that a lot of the ways that you can get integrated into freelancing as a beginner is oftentimes to create your own thing. One of the ways that I'd say is finding a hackathon and creating your own project based on existing technologies and then getting rewarded for it, and then potentially rolling that into an actual full-blown product. I think that's a great way for a beginner to really jump in. Do you have a favorite hackathon or like, do you go to all of them? Do you focus on the virtual hackathons? What would you recommend for a kind of beginner? Personally, I've focused on the virtual hackathons, but that's more of a function of me and my family prefer not to travel in these sort of trailing COVID times. <laughs> ah, yeah. Your partner is significantly more effective at getting you not to travel than mine is. <laughs> I'll, I'll put yes. it that way. <laughs> so you participate in a lot of the virtual hackathons. Right. Some of the favorites that I have heard good things about are like the ETH Denver one is one that I hear people talk about all the time. Super welcoming to developers. Also, the fact that it's free to attend, I think, is one of the biggest things that, that draws people to it. It's just created an awesome community of people who are super welcoming. I think that the, the, the ETH Global ones are, are pretty good also, and they have a lot Thanks. of online virtual ones re relatively frequently. So, Did you participate in the ETH Bogota hackathon at DevCon? No, I, I didn't. And I'm kind of kicking myself for not. It, it would have been a great opportunity, but I was just really busy with a lot of other stuff at the time. Understandable. Well, hopefully we'll get to see you at DevCon 7, wherever in the world that ends up. Hopefully, hopefully. Okay, so how about for more seasoned professionals making the switch to freelance, like you did, a decade in development work, that's a lot of time, that's a, lot, a lot of quality experience. I imagine any DAO would be very lucky to have you. How do you suggest an experienced developer leverage that experience and network to find more engagements in the space. The best ways for an experienced professional to get their name out is to actually just go on podcasts, go on Twitter spaces, go on community calls, and just like start introducing yourself, saying what you're good at. And if you have a technical background, people will flock to you like crazy. <laughs> I've seen it firsthand. Like, uh, the number of things that I say no to far outstrips the number of things that I say yes to. And I think that was even true before I got into Web3. So once once you got your get your name out there, people will, will find you. So the lesson here is make yourself available, go to all the things, but also don't be afraid to say no, because saying no to the wrong things can present opportunities for when the right thing does come along. That's true. And figuring out what is right for you is a deeply personal sort of choice. 
And the advice that I give on that note is that there's a huge number of things going on in Web3. And I personally felt my calling was with identity and reputation and data sovereignty type topics. So I sought out opportunities that, that really kind of worked with those subjects. If you're interested in more artistic approaches, there's plenty of stuff for you. If you're more interested in like financial type stuff, there's plenty of opportunity there as well. So what is your, what is your current portfolio look like? Where are you currently contributing? Yeah. So a few of the communities that I'm actively contributing with, the first one I'll mention is TalentDAO. So TalentDAO is using science to fix DAOs and using DAOs to fix science is one of their, one of their taglines. They're basically, they're creating a research community that's doing research on DAOs. And it's populated with a bunch of like organizational psychologists and researchers and developers and all sorts of really intelligent people. They're building really cool stuff. So with them, I'm focused mostly on reputation-based governance is one of the, one of my focuses right now. Okay. I'm glad that you are contributing there. That's a, an exciting project. Opolis actually sponsors the newsletter and Saltorn.eth nice. is one of my favorite people in the space. So it's awesome that you guys get to work together. Oh yeah. She's, she is great. So you touched on this briefly and I'd like to give you the opportunity to kind of expand on it. How did you find your niche and, and what was that like? That was really a big part of my kernel adventure when I was first starting out was figuring out what really spoke to me at like a personal level, what drove my passion in the tech space. And the thing that I came out with was that I was really driven by privacy and reputation and data sovereignty. And part of the reason was for that is that in a past role, I was working on speech recognition systems and I saw the massive amount of data that they required in order to train. And admittedly, I was working at a startup and our speech recognition systems were okay, but I could imagine the oceans of data that the large speech recognition systems that you could probably name are collecting and potentially storing. And all of it's very opaque and we don't really know what they're doing with it. So that's what drove me into the Web3 space and ignited my passion here. So I decided to really pursue all of the, all the topics related to privacy and data ownership. For someone else who's just starting out, my, my advice would be to think about what really interests you, think about what potentially even makes you angry, figure out what problems you see in the world and what you want to fix. And then try to match that up with your skill set. Like, what are you good at? Where could you meaningfully contribute to a project like that? And then lastly, seek out the projects that have sufficient funding to, to support you in that journey. It's a little bit of a challenge sometimes when you find startups that are pretty strapped for cash, especially as more of an experienced developer for me. So I, I think you just got to find the balance and risk tolerance that you're willing to put up with to pursue whatever you're passionate about. So as a Web2 developer, a lot of it's closed source. You don't have all of the work that you're working on in your GitHub repo. But now as a Web3 developer, have you taken extra steps to create a portfolio or is it just like, here's my GitHub, you can see all of the things I've worked on? That's, that's a good question. And, and as, as more of an experienced developer and also as more of a, in, in the full stack, I, I can do front end, but I, I do focus a little bit more on the back end. So I usually don't have a pretty interface that goes with the work that I create. And that's been true for the majority of my career. So 
before when I was in Web 2, it was like pulling teeth trying to get new gigs. <laughs> it was uh, to like explain all of the things that you know somehow in like uh, a 30 minute to hour long interview. And then you would have to do like a technical challenge that's also potentially only 30 minutes to an hour. And if you mess up just once, they're going to be like, oh, this guy's too junior. He's not going to, he's not going to do what we need. Even though if you had like just Googled something different, <laughs> you would have been able to do it better. Are these like the dreaded whiteboard interviews that I hear about that we're talking yeah, about? Yeah. Yeah. I'm talking about technical interviews where they like, they do Oof. some sort of whiteboard challenge or they even like have you come in and sit at a computer and actually program something out. It's just awful. But as a web three developer working on open source, I can say, here's my GitHub. You can just take a look at some of the pull requests that I've created. You can see that they're very well thought out. You can see that all the code that I write is very clean. It's got good documentation, that sort of stuff. Cool. One of the things I've been curious about is when you were transitioning out of Ocean Protocol, I remember seeing a tweet and a note that was like, I'm back on the market. I'm looking for new work. What was that process like? How long did you go without pay between those? Were there typical like freelance struggles? And I guess now, are you stable in where you're at? Or are you still looking? Those are great questions. The first one I'd say that when I first parted ways with the Ocean Protocol Foundation, I received a massive deluge of like incoming messages of people asking me if I wanted to like work with them. And that was exciting That's and fantastic. also super overwhelming. <laughs> it was <laughs> the unfortunate truth is it came at a time in my personal life where I was dealing with some stuff that was going on and I didn't feel super comfortable like jumping on all these opportunities as they came up, mostly because I know that reputation is everything in this business. And I didn't want to commit to something that I would later not be able to fulfill. So I ended up taking a lot of smaller sort of like less lower risk tasks for that first couple of months. And in that time, I, I submitted some proposals to a DAO that I'm involved with called the Ocean DAO. Related or not related to Ocean Protocol? It is related. It's the DAO okay. associated with it. So I did some small tasks for them. Like I created a snapshot strategy for them. Cool. And I also did some initial legwork on integrating their stack with Arweave decentralized storage. Very cool. And that kind of carried me through those first couple of months. I also, I will say that I, I ran into some good luck with the, the optimism airdrop that also helped sustain me for a good month as well. Yeah. So, so you, you liquidated your responsibility to help pay the bills. I did. And I even posted about it on Twitter and oh. I feel good. I feel good about it because <laughs> it's what I needed to do in order to support myself and my family during that time. I, yeah. I um, think of all of the airdrops across the board as being this like just liquid UBI where all of it is part of the market cap of ETH and it's just like diverted in some parts to the ecosystem. And we as individuals build our portfolios kind of like to support different things that we want to support within the ecosystem, but it's all one ecosystem. And this goes back to the thread of like you and I are colleagues. We don't work together. We don't have the same employer, but like we are colleagues. And we probably will be colleagues for the next like decade, at least. <laughs> Here's hoping. Here's hoping, right? Yeah, right? Uh. <laughs> well, one of the many questions in there that I wanted to make sure that you answered was, everyone's got to pay the bills. So what was it like in the transition between your last paycheck from, or I guess your last allocation from, because you were already part of Opolis, from Ocean Protocol Foundation 
to taking these mini gigs to where you're at now? What was the, was there any periods of insecurity or were you relying on savings? Like how did that work? Yeah, I think that there was a period of time where I was re relying on savings. The truth is that like going from one primary client and then jumping immediately into try and creating multiple client relationships a little bit without notice was difficult. And honestly, I probably wouldn't recommend it if, if other people are trying it. If you have something stable, hold on to that until you've kind of built up at least one or two smaller clients on the side and then try to make the switch once you have like that third one that that, you, that that would be able to sustain you. Would you do anything differently? Yeah, yeah. I think I would probably, if I had more foresight, I probably would have tried to get a more solid sort of development role at a, a, a DAO part-time while I was still at the Ocean Protocol Foundation. And then maybe at the moment that I had the second one, I would have made the transition at that point. So this is like the age old, like, don't quit your job until you have a new one lined up? Yeah, basically. <laughs> I've managed to find my way nonetheless. What really turned the tables for me was that I was putting myself out there. I was really like showing people that I was available, posting about it on Twitter, talking about it in community calls. Going to MCON was a really big one for me too. So like not having shame about being in a position of perceived vulnerability. I think culturally we have this like, oh, if I don't have a job, I am worth less. And so people are afraid to put themselves out there. And so you're saying like, no, put yourself out there. Yeah, definitely. Some of the other things that we've mentioned here also, I, I think that creating a portfolio for yourself, creating an online presence that is easily linked and easily traversed so that people can find the information about you that they need to know is super critical. One of the things that our viewers really want to know is about compensation throughout the ecosystem, right? So you've done the working for a bigger protocol, you've done some of the smaller gigs, you've done some of the bounty work. What is the, for your specific skill set or the things you're working on, what are some of the different salaries? Or do you think of it as salaries? Do you think of it as, is it like an hourly, weekly, monthly? I usually conceptualize it as an hourly, even if I'm bidding for a proposal with like a flat rate. It's usually because I've kind of I've gone into the problem, figuring out about how many hours I think it's going to take me, and then backtracked from what I think my hourly rate should be to arrive at the final project amount. So I've seen a range of like, for very un unexperienced juniors just coming into the space who are just jumping in, the pay is actually really good, even just starting out. I've seen people make $100 an hour just as an absolute beginner. Really? Yeah, yeah. But then for the more experienced folks, it goes up from there. I personally have been going after contracts that are around the 130 to 150 range. And I've seen other developers that are more focused on a particular technology, especially Solidity, the really senior Solidity developers who've been in the space for several years are pulling down upwards of like 200 to 250 or even $300 an hour if they're really good. Wow. Some really crazy stuff like that. Three, just back of the napkin, $350 an hour consistently at 40 hours a week is about $700,000 a year. Yeah. But so the, the thing is like, you, you have to be really good at filling your pipeline in order to be working every single hour of right. the week. I'd say that most freelancers are probably averaging more like 80, 80% 80 or maybe even down at 60% depending on their, their seniority. If you're more senior, you could actually be even doing 
towards the lower, like 60. Now, is this in a mix of stable coins and the native token? Is a lot of the comp in a very volatile asset? Or is it a mix or is it mostly stable coins? That's a great question. I don't have enough experience to know like how much each of those different categories you're going to see in the industry. I know they all exist. Okay. I know that different projects are going to like really emphasize their protocol token and other projects are able to offer stable coins. I know that for me personally, I usually go for a mix. I prefer to have like the base portion in stable coins that I can rely on, especially if it's a longer running project. Sure. Um, but then I'll, I'll, I'll go for like a, a bonus or, or like an extra or just an aug augmented part in protocol tokens. Do you think about it as like skin in the game where like you'll do a better job or you'll be more excited about maybe, I don't know, coding something that's less exciting to you? If you're like, all right, there's a lot of upside for me here. If I do really well, the token could take off like that kind of thing. Do you think about it that I way? I think that absolutely factors into it. Yeah. There's a lot of different factors you got to consider when you're evaluating a token. I mean, anyone on the financial DeFi side will tell you a lot more about it than I could. But my basic framework is like, is it when will it be liquid enough for me to sell if I needed to? That's an important consideration because a lot of early stage projects are not going to be liquid right away. Sure. Also, just like what are the tokenomics of the project that you're working on? Well, I gravitate towards the projects that have better tokenomics. <laughs> that's that's a whole other skill. In yeah, itself. There's, there's probably more upside in less established things because it's like if you end up making it a thing, then there's higher upside. I think you're selling yourself short. I think you understand a lot more. I don't think that when people approach, especially like, all right, just take a Web2 startup. Like, I don't look at the entire cap table when I think about my, what, what is the equity that I'm earning for this role? I'm not like combing through a cap table and being like, the tokenomics suck. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. But like you're actually thinking about it. I, I think most of the time I wouldn't go to that length either, but I have met people in the Web2 space that do that. <laughs> <laughs> you're like going through Etherscan, you're like, oh, this guy's a holder, I'm not interested. I'll take more USTC, please. <laughs> I've never had to do that. Well, also the entire time I've been in the space, I've either been solid at either consensus and now Opolis and uh, ETH Denver. There's not really like a, I don't do the, as much of the DAO, like, oh, this DAO's got this holder. I'm not really, I'm not going to contribute. Oh, sure. Sure. <laughs> like I said, I, I do go for the, the stable coins more so just because I've got a family. I got to make sure that... <laughs> The tokens don't go down to zero tomorrow. So <laughs> speaking of family is one of the things that your partner, like that you guys had to talk about when you left your web two job, like benefits was like, where are you going to get your healthcare? Is this a thing that you're going to be able to take care of? Because if you can't, like you can't leave, you guys stick it out where you are. That was a huge discussion for us. And like, it was a very deeply stressful situation. The honest truth is from my Web2 job, I actually got laid off partially because of the, the downturn in the economy from COVID. The issue there was that I was able to get COBRA coverage, which is in the U.S. here. It's this form of insurance that you can access after leaving your previous employer, where you are now responsible for 100% of the benefits premium 
but you can still keep the same health insurance until you figure out your next. Oh thing. yeah. This audience knows about Cobra. I complain about it all the time. Okay. <laughs> so I had a particularly bad experience with Cobra because my previous employer had me like hand deliver a check in order to pay for my Cobra coverage. Oh, they, they couldn't figure out how to let me do that like digitally. So it was this really uncomfortable situation for about three months after I got laid off where I had to go to the old office and like hand them a check. It was, it was so stupid. I hated it. I hated yeah. it. Really. Well, and then you like, you lose your job and then it's like, please pay more for your health insurance, please. It's not even the care. It's just the premiums. It's just, yeah, Cobra's broken. Well, healthcare's broken. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I did not particularly enjoy that experience. So one of my biggest concerns when I started in the Web3 space, starting as a freelancer was like, how am I going to access benefits, especially if I'm working as a contract worker for a company that exists as a foundation in Singapore and is manned by a team in Europe? Like, how do I, as a U.S. individual, figure all that out? Especially if I was, in, in my particular case, at the Ocean Protocol Foundation, I was their second U.S. contractor at the time. Basically, they, they didn't really do anything for the benefits. I had to figure it out myself. So I had two options, as far as I could tell. I could like go on this marketplace area, figure out which plan worked best for me, and just try to find the cheapest one I could. Or I could join this collective of Web3 and Web freelancers called Opolis. I'm familiar. <laughs> yeah. That would pool me together with a bunch of other like-minded individuals who are all doing their own things, but then would negotiate for benefits as a collective with the bargaining power of the entire number of people that were there. That seemed like a no-brainer to me, honestly, at the time. I was like, yes. I immediately went out to the marketplace and found the plan that Opolis was offering and did like an apples-to-apples price comparison. Ooh, let me hear it. And at the time, it would have costed me $300 more per month as an individual than if I was getting the exact same plan through Opolis. Averaged out over the course of an entire year, that's a pretty significant savings. I think the percentage would have been about 15% difference, maybe maybe higher. I'm not sure. It's okay. There's some states where we see that like it's up to 40 50% savings oh, wow. from what you can get on the exchange. That's incredible. Yeah. So I'm glad we were able to save you 300 a month. That's huge. It was big. And from there, I realized that there was a whole host of other benefits, like additional cherries on top, so to speak, that, that made the whole experience a lot better. Yeah. I kind of want to ask what your experience has been like with payroll. So you work full-time in the Web3 space. You get paid in a mix of stable coins and protocol native tokens. What is it like for you? Does it is it a huge pain in the ass with the bank? Like what? Those were big questions in my mind when I was first starting out. But I really worked hard to set up a system for myself that is ultimately super easy to maintain. It was a little bit of work to get it all set up. But now that I have it all set, I really don't worry about how I'm going to get these tokens into my personal bank account or how I'm going to manage my business so that it pays for all the services that it needs. I've got it all figured out. Yeah. What does it look like? The real quick version is like, there's two different things that you need to do with tokens if they're in a business. You either have to get them from the business into your personal accounts so that you can pay for stuff as an individual, like rent and food and stuff. And then you also are probably going to have to pay for some amount of business expenses because every business has them. And a lot of places don't accept 
<laughs> USDC even, or any sort of token, they expect fiat currency. Those are the two rails that I had to figure out. The first one is taken care of by Opolis. Anytime I need to move money from my business into my personal accounts, I run payroll. So that means that my business pays tokens directly to Opolis. And when I say tokens, I'm directly transferring tokens to their smart contract address. And then they withhold the federal taxes, the state taxes, the local taxes, and the benefit premiums that I owe, and then forwards the rest of it as whatever mixture of tokens and fiat that I want. And they put that into my personal bank account as a direct deposit. So in that way, I am able to pay for all the stuff that I normally would as a person living in a house and eating food. <laughs> the second rail that I talked about was how does my business pay for stuff? So in order to do that, my business had to set up a business bank account. I couldn't figure, way, figure out a way around that. I did try. <laughs> and then it also needed to have some sort of institutional cryptocurrency exchange account. There's three that I went with. There's Kraken, Gemini, and Wire is the third one. And with those three exchanges, I, I can feel reasonably comfortable that any token that I need to off-ramp, I will be able to do so. And when I say off-ramp, that means selling a token for fiat currency that I can then send directly to the business bank account. Once I got those two rails set up, I was able to figure out any expense that my business or my personal stuff needed. Is that a cat? There is, there is a cat in the background. Yes, I do. I have two cats. Oh, nice. What are their names? One is, one is named Evie and the other one is named Flair. Ah, okay. A man after my own heart. All about Pokemon. <laughs> I so seven years later, whatever it is, I'm still playing Pokemon Go, so. <laughs> oh, nice. Nice. <laughs> Yeah, it's like when you go to a new country or a new place, you just like open it up, grab a Pokemon, and that's like, you've got this like memento from, yeah, yeah some people go into the gift store and buy a bunch of stuff. I collect Pokemon. <laughs> Everyone's got their collections. For me, it's Poaps. Oh, man, I love Poaps. What's, okay, let's just real quick, what's your favorite Poap? My favorite Poap? Yeah, Poap's? you have like one that you're like, this oh, is the best I mean, one I ever got. I mean, the best one, the one that was life-changing almost for me was the initial bankless token that I got, the pull-up that I re redeemed with That's a good answer. the bankless podcast. Yeah. For me, that one was big because I actually subscribed to their podcast one month before the DAO dropped. And I got my POAP and I was able to then immediately join the DAO with my, I don't remember how much the, the first token drop was. The thousands like, of bank. Yeah, something like that. Um, and I just jumped into the community and I've been part of the community ever since. So that's a really big one. So just so the people who are listening who don't know, POAP is a proof of attendance protocol. You probably would get a POAP for listening to this uh, or subscribing or whatever. But so Patricio, the founder, they founded POAP at ETH Denver. So, uh, you know, POAP's been in our hearts. But the bankless one that you're specifically mentioning, if you were a subscriber in 2020, you got a POAP for being a subscriber and then if you were a subscriber in 2021, you got two. So you got the 2020 and you got the 2021. And for being on both of those lists, you got a lot of bank. I think I was, so that yeah. and I had donated to their Gitcoin grant in a matching round a couple of times. And oh, so nice. I was like a top 30 holder of bank for a while. And I never, I wouldn't oh, have wow. gotten involved in the community if I hadn't have accidentally gotten that airdrop because I wasn't really reading the podcast or the newsletter that much. And then now look, my background is usually be on my chair is yeah. like a Metafactory bankless drop. 
I'm like all into the bankless community. Yes, it is. I recognize that one. I didn't grab that one. I, I wish I had. <laughs> it's an interesting, it's an interesting one for sure. It's very soft, but collect PO apps because you never know what good can come from just having a PO app. But don't farm them. I like them. I see them as like a map of my journey, of the things that I've done. I, I think it serves as, as a, a source of reputation and will be a, a source of reputation as yeah. I continue my Web3 journey. That's a really good way to put it. I think that's a great transition to my last question, which based on your experience, what are some of the pros and cons that developers face transitioning to freelance? that we should be thinking about? Sure, so I think that there's a lot of differences between the working environment when you're working at like a salaried or full-time sort of job versus as a freelancer where you could have potentially multiple clients. I think the first major difference is that they really push you to optimize for 100% productivity when you're at a larger or even a smaller full-time job. And they try to set up stuff with like a program manager or project manager so that you can really focus in on doing the work that you're assigned each day. But along with that, like I said, you're assigned work every single day. You have very little kind of flexibility, especially if there's business needs that, that trump any sort of personal interest that you might have. It can be hard to pursue your passions in that sort of role. I'd also say that as a salaried individual, you generally get less per hour because you're not taking on as much risk. You're not seeking out your own opportunities and you probably don't have your own business structure that you're trying to maintain. I, I think that was one of the things that, that stuck out to me when I transitioned to freelance work was that I could immediately request a boost in revenue simply because I, it's implied that you're probably maintaining some sort of business, some sort of liability shield for yourself. At least I hope you are. <laughs> and <laughs> you probably have additional business expenses on top of that, like accounting. And if you're drawing up contracts, you might have some legal stuff or, or going to conferences and everything else that goes into to pursuing leads is the business development stuff that you're not necessarily paid for if you're not budgeting it into your contract structure. So yeah, I, I think you can get paid more as a freelancer per hour. And I also think that you have a lot more freedom to pursue your passions because you can have maybe your one stable client or your two stable clients that really pay the bills. And then you can have that third one where you like you're doing stuff more for sweat equity or you're taking a risk on a underdeveloped token community. And there's just a lot of more options for managing your personal risk as a freelancer, in my opinion. I do have one more question. I lied. As something you said inspired this, I want to ask everyone, did you quit your nine to five to work 24 <laughs> seven? Like the saying goes, or have you managed your like time better than that? I have learned to manage my time better than that. I did not manage my time well when I first started. And that, that goes back even to like when I first transitioned into Web3, I was just constantly being distracted and trying to learn everything that I could. Nowadays, I have become much more regimented and I, um, I use a time tracker now. I personally use Harvest, though, but there's a bunch of different options out there for it. Um, and using that, okay. I can kind of organize and track how much time that I'm spending on each of my different tasks. And that has allowed me to, at 5 p.m., I try to unplug and I, I spend the rest of the night with my family as best I can. And that's super important because my son, he's only a couple of years old now. So he really needs that sort of structure in the latter half of the oh, day. How old? I, he's two and a half now. Ah, mine's, mine's three and a half. going to turn four oh. soon. 
We got okay, everything yeah. together. Are you bringing your kids to eat Denver this year? I have not broached that topic yet. So maybe, maybe we can, we can figure it out. Highly recommend it. We'll make sure we get your partner tickets. They're free. And then okay. we also have free childcare. So we brought Theo this year, ETheodorable.eth, that's him. We brought Theo this year and dropped him in the free childcare. <laughs> oh, how fun. That sounds yeah. like a great option. That sounds like a great idea. Cool. Is there anything else that you wanted to say? Like, where can my audience find you for more of these tips and tricks on surviving the Web3 world? Sure. Yeah, you can find me all over Mantis Clone in most of the different places that I like Twitter or Leinster on GitHub, a lot of different places, really. And beyond that, I, I think on LinkedIn, I still use my, my, my actual name, David. <laughs> so you can find <laughs> me there as well. David, Mantis Clone, thank you so much for joining me on Unemployable today. As someone who freelanced for years, I know the value of your insight and strategies, and I believe the community will find this episode interesting and informative as well. Thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. As always, to the unemployable community, I'd love to hear your reactions and thoughts to the episode. Please tweet at the show at Opolis with the hashtag unemployablepod. At unemployable, I'll always be looking ahead to see what's on the horizon and bringing you top strategies for thriving in the new economy with freedom, flexibility, and peace of mind. I hope you got a lot out of this episode on finding work as a freelance web developer. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast player. Your ratings and reviews help other unemployables find the show. Until next time, I'm your host, Joshua Lapidus, a founding steward of Opolis, co-founder of SporkDAO, Buffalcorn riding champion, and tenured professor here at Unemployable University. I'm Mantis Clone, and I'm unemployable. See ya.